Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology. This is Patrick here, and this is of course the show where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today on the show you'll get to hear my recent conversation with Dr. Chi Chu Lee of Singapore Bible College, author of the recently published and well-received treatise which you can find linked in the description entitled When Christians Face Persecution, Theological Perspectives from the New Testament. Chi Chu's areas of interest include hermeneutics and New Testament background and theology and so she's very well equipped to look at this particular topic with fresh eyes and yes folks we're getting into a controversial but very very important topic today and I really hope you all appreciate what Chi Chu has to say uh, both in this interview and in the book about how the earliest Christians wrestled with the question of their own suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire and the really profound answers they came to um, under the influence of God's spirit as we believe and we also deal with the significance of these perspectives for the church today. Um, I think it's only fitting that I put some links in the description to organizations who are actively seeking to improve the well-being of Christians in the persecuted countries like China, Eritrea, North Korea, Pakistan. And you can feel free to support them financially as they look to bring God's justice and compassion to the people who need it most. Without further ado, let's get on to the show and I hope you all enjoy. Hello, Chi Chu. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Of course, we're going to be speaking about your um, just recently released book on persecution in the New Testament. Greatly appreciate um, what you've written. And um, before we get to that, I'd love to ask some fun questions to help the sure. audience get to know you. And... Um, of course, you're you're Singaporean. Um, well, you live yes. in Singapore anyway. I don't want to assume anything. My first question would be that what's the what's the best and worst thing about living in this uh, very unique part of the world? Um, from from what I've heard. Yes, I'll start with the worst. Okay. I well, I live in a country that is right at the equator, so the worst thing is the humid and the hot weather. Like these few days, it's just to me intolerable. Uh, because of the humidity. The temperature is about um, 33 to 35 degrees Celsius, but it makes breathing more difficult because of the humidity. Mm. Uh, but of course, I don't complain um, considering the heat wave that's coming down uh, in India up to 45 degrees Celsius. Um, I suppose I should be contented where I am. Um, about the best place living here, I would say that this is a very small city-state um, that is well-governed. Um, of course, not perfect in every way, but I'm very glad to be called a Singaporean. Mm. And it's actually very small, isn't it? Even though the population is so big, you have like... Very dense. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No, it's... Uh, I, I have a few friends from, from Singapore, so, you know, it's... Mm. a interesting to have this connection but um the of course you're at the um the bible college in singapore um and of yes. course you have that logo behind you that the audience can't <laughs> see but singapore bible college um mm -hmm. and i'm curious to know what is what is one area of biblical studies or theology that you will always avoid and why well admittedly there are difficult issues um in in the bible uh, but I never thought of avoiding them, but rather I 
would always tell myself I should not avoid them and try to do my best um, in trying to understand the biblical teachings uh, on these difficult issues. Okay, so um, so basically, you don't avoid anything. You just you just go for the difficult things, and that's. Uh, well, I try not to avoid, though I must say that I don't have um, satisfying answers um, um, most of the time for difficult issues. <laughs> okay, okay. The other thing is that, of course, this is um, this book is on the topic of persecution that we're going to be talking about. And um, what is what is the root of your interest in in this particular topic? Many of my students are international students. They come from regions with significant Christian persecution. Uh, when I interacted with them, I noticed that while their understanding of the New Testament teachings on persecution is generally correct, their understanding lacked depth and breadth. So they are not adequately well-rounded. Um, they tend to emphasize certain parts of scripture while neglecting others. And also, I find that there is a gap in terms of adequate contextual reflections in applying the biblical principles. So these experiences first motivated me to study and write on this topic more than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. And um, get, getting on to, you know, the, my, my, the main questions that, uh, that, that I have in relation to this book, um, maybe just to start out, like, how would you define persecution because it, it seems like kind of one of those words that's like trying to glue like jelly to a wall you know it's just it's just like a, one of those slippery terms mm -hmm. well it is a common term that many of us come across uh, we are not so careful in terms of uh, defining it so um, i simply start off with the definition given to us in the cambridge english dictionary where persecution involves unfair or cruel treatment over a long period of time because of race, religion, or political beliefs. So if we apply this definition to Christian persecution, then it would be uh, involving unfair and cruel treatment over a long period of time because of a person's faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it is important for us to note that while persecution is a form of opposition, opposition in itself does not necessarily lead to persecution mm -hmm. and should not simply be identified with persecution unless it involves unfair and cruel treatment over a long period of time. Mm. And I suppose when people are opposed, they kind of just tend to assume that it's, <laughs> that it's unfair treatment. So it, it makes sense why it's occasionally in some countries get more, you know, unfair accusations of persecution. But um, of course, it's certainly a very real issue that um, that we'll be getting into as well in a little bit yes. later in the interview. But, um, you know, just starting at the basics, you know, a question that that you address in chapter one of your book is is why the Romans would have wanted to persecute Christians. And, um, you know, when I just stopped to think about that, I was kind of like, well, I've never actually considered, you know, we tend to just think the big bad Romans, you know, they they, they were just so intolerant. But um, and maybe they were, but perhaps you could briefly elaborate on, on the threat they, they perceived in Christians. Yeah, let me first clarify the ethnography of the New Testament world. The Romans from Italy established the empire in the Mediterranean world, which consisted of many ethnic groups and local languages. 
So at the risk of oversimplification, uh, we may classify them into two major categories. First, the polytheists, whom we usually call pagans, and the monotheists, who, are, who were the Jews and Christians. Now, both groups have a commonality in their religious understanding. God for the monotheists or the gods for the polytheists are their benefactors and blessing them with good fortune in every aspect of life if people pay their due respects to their deity through worship and rituals. So conversely, people would incur divine wrath in terms of various misfortunes if they are ungrateful and do not worship their deity. Thus, when polytheists become Christians and no longer worship the, traditionally, the traditional gods, you can imagine the conflicts that would arise within their own community. Mm. The people feared that divine wrath would then spill over to the rest of the community due to the unfaithfulness of these converted Christians. Furthermore, such unfaithfulness dishonored the community. Thus, pagans perceived Christians as a threat through their dearly held traditions. So in the early days, the primary reason for persecution is social more than political. So in terms of the Romans, this special ethnic group that happened to rule over most of the Mediterranean world, um, there is this religious threat there when their own gods are dishonored by their um, own people who become Christians, the Roman Christians, or in a sense, the unrest that arises from the opposition from various ethnic groups against um, Christians mm. uh, would cause the ruling, the rulers who are the Romans, uh, to want to put down this unrest. Uh, so these are some of the background, uh, mainly uh, the background for Christian persecution during the first century. Mm -hmm. From your answer, you know, you can tell there's definitely an honor-shame component to yes. it. And yes. that's something that's really difficult for for us in in the Western world to to understand. Um, I, I don't know is is would Singapore technically be an honor shame culture or I'm just trying to think because well, it depends on the community. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, cultures that are more influenced by the Western um, uh, thoughts would would not see honor and shame as so important. So I would say that um, some of the people in Singapore, I would say, uh, mm -hmm. who are uh, educated with a Western curriculum uh, would be more like the West. Uh, but Christians who come from communities that hold on to traditional Chinese values or um, uh, some other monotheistic mm -hmm. religious culture uh, would highly hold on to um, the... Uh, honor and shame culture, uh, like mm -hmm. the Malays and the other Muslims uh, in our region. So okay. I would say that Singapore is so small, it is multicultural with lots of immigrants. Um, uh, I would say that we interact, I would say extensively with neighboring countries of uh, various different cultures as well. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. So needless to say, you have a better, you have a better grasp of the, the, the social dynamic of that than, than we would in Ireland anyway. Um, yes. But um and of course, a lot of the listeners are American, and so similar situation where they wouldn't um, necessarily understand that. But um, you know, the, the other group, you know, we've talked about the Romans and and the threat that they perceive, but there's also um, 
the question of the Jews and um, to what extent are, are the Jews implicated in the persecution of Christians in the New Testament? And uh, the second part of this question, which is, of course, I think an important one, is how we should navigate this sensitive topic in light of the, the tables being turned for much of Christ, for much of history. Right. Although there are some Jews um, who believed that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the majority of Jews at that time did not believe so. So most of them found Christians a threat, again, to their dearly held traditions, such as circumcision, separation from uncleanness, um, as indispensable rights as God's people. So in this respect, they were similar to the pagans. So in order to preserve their honoured traditions, it is understandable that they would oppose Christians, but sadly, some of them to the extent of persecuting Christians. This turning around of tables didn't just happen during the Second World War or the First World War. It happened, in fact, shortly after um, the uh, 3rd and 4th century when uh, so-called many pagans turned to become Christians. So sadly speaking, these Christians begin to persecute other pagans who didn't turn to Christian, Christianity and of course the other Jews. So it is important that we need to remind ourselves not to stereotypify people, right? Uh, for example, saying that those of XX ethnic group, they're all like this. Or those of YY religion, they're all like this. They're not all the same. Yeah. So when we stereotypify people, um, that's the time where we tend to mistreat people or discriminate people just because of their ethnicity or their beliefs mm -hmm. rather than specific wrongdoings um, that has happened. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that, of course. And something that, that maybe helps us understand the first part of the question as well is, is the character of Saul of Tarsus, you know, in that... When you when you read about him in, in the book of Acts, you can almost understand why he's going after the the Christians because he thinks you know that this is some sort of um, return to to polytheism, like like in the Old Testament. So, to some extent, yes, to call Jesus a man, um, God, to, to regard him as divine, uh, to the Jews of that time, even now, uh, for those Orthodox Jews, is something just unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And the same case for um, people who hold to the Islamic faith. Of course, if we turn to, you know, the person we get basically one third of Christian theology from, the Apostle Paul, you know, he has a lot to say about this topic. M many the theologians have read, they think that, that Paul's theology of persecution revolves around kind of the idea of participation in the life of Christ. And, um, and maybe you could explain if you can what this means and do you follow the same trajectory or do you have a different different way of putting it okay. now participation in the life of christ by suffering like christ is one of the ways paul understood the meaning of christian persecution so the logic goes like this so if believers are all in christ they share the um abundance of life eternal life that christ gives to his um people uh, they will not only experience the good things about Christ and the life that he gives, but they will also experience um, the not so good things, the sufferings mm -hmm. that Christ has to go through for righteousness. So this is kind of um, uh, 
in a way, Paul thinks that there is no escape from suffering from persecution uh, as a Christian. It's mm -hmm. kind of destined to be so. Uh, nonetheless, this is not the main or the only way that Paul understands persecution. Um, he would also see his suffering from persecution as an opportunity to advance the gospel in two ways. Now, firstly, uh, to as an opportunity to bear witness for Jesus among um, those who oppose him, especially the um, soldiers, the guards uh, that kind of like guard him from running away. And he's, they're always with him all the time. And he finds that these are wonderful opportunities where he can share the gospel with them, uh, as well as before those people who accuse him, especially when he's being brought to the governors um, or the governing authorities by people who accuse him. So he always takes those opportunities to witness for Christ. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, he also thinks that when he suffers from persecution and he perseveres, he becomes a positive example for other believers, uh, such that they will also uh, be encouraged to proclaim the gospel courageously despite persecution. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of... Uh... Uh, riffing off what you just said there in the like the second reason that you gave do you think the concept of, of virtue ethics plays a role in um in how paul would have explained persecution um you know i'm thinking of the passage springs to mind for me the most when i think of persecution is romans 5 3 to 5 um you know this produces this and this produces this and at the end you have um hope and character and mm -hmm. um you know, this at first glance seems to have some Aristotelian features to it, and I'm wondering if if you would you would agree, or or what do you, what do you think? I would say that the New Testament authors live in a culture that um, they would interact with, so they don't live in a vacuum. <laughs> so certain of these um, uh, Aristotelian uh, virtue ethics does come into play. Uh, in terms of uh, shaping the first century Jews. So in this sense, virtue ethics does play a role, though minor, as a way to understand that there can be some positive values to suffering persecution. Um, so other positive values that we mentioned just now, um, as a form of witnessing, as a form of a good example, uh, also comes into play. But nonetheless, it is the eschatological value of perseverance that forms the main motivation to suffer persecution. Uh, because the um, at the last judgment, it is God who is the one who determines uh, who shall have life and who shall not have life. So it is important. Um, the eschatological um, perspective is very important because uh, suffering now is just temporal. Um, temporary and it's only this lifetime, but eventually uh, it will become an eternal glory or eternal life uh, at the last judgment. But to escape from suffering from persecution may just give relief temporarily now, but at the last judgment is going to have a high cost of uh, facing the eternal judgment of condemnation before God. So this is actually the main um, motivation that not just Paul, but other New Testament authors uh, would hold on to, to encourage themselves and others to persevere in persecution. 
this is more of a philosophical question. Um, what is the relationship between the theological question of persecution and the question of theodicy? Well, um, it is a bit difficult for us to imagine sometimes that why a good and loving God would allow unfair things or uh, mistreatments to happen to people, uh, not just because they were persecuted uh, for their faith, for, for any other um, so-called what we perceive as unfair uh, treatments. Mm -hmm. So I suppose Christian eschatology plays a major role in the New Testament to answer this question. It's not that God doesn't see these unfair treatments or he does nothing about it. He does. Uh, but when does he do that? Um, it is at the final judgment. Mm -hmm. God will vindicate his people before their persecutors to show them that Christians have not done wrong in believing in Jesus. At the same time, God will also avenge his people against those who mistreat them. So it is the eschatology of Christians that would then explain uh, that God is still a fair and just God, even though we don't seem to see that very often um, in our own lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one way that I think is really helpful of understanding, you know, apocalypses in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, you have the book of Revelation and the New, that's the one that all Christians know, is to think of them as like theodicies you know, that they're they're explaining the, the problem of suffering. I think when you have that as your ground base, it's definitely a really helpful um, mm -hmm. helpful uh, way of putting it. And, um, you, you know, the, the other side of um, of those is, 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 of course, the the notion of God's justice, you know, that, that God will put things put things right. But I'm wondering, um, is there is there a retributive justice perspective on persecution at all in the New Testament? And that's kind of the idea that, you know, the, the reason certain Christians were being persecuted was because of their sin or their their lack of dedication. And, um, you know, you, you do get that at times in, in the Old Testament, certainly. Um, and, you know, if not this, um, it, it would seem to be, you know, a, an interesting distinctive of early Christianity. But But I'm curious to know, you know, is that something we find at all in the New Testament? Well, if we look at the Old Testament, um, I would describe that as God's judgment on his people for their sins and their lack of faithfulness, as in they turn to other gods who are not gods, mm -hmm. right? Um, so this is, in a sense, retributive, but um, I would not define it as um, persecution per se, uh, because that is a, um, uh, a rightful, deserved consequence of sin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, although the so-called um, opponents that God would engage to punish his people, such as the Babylonians and the Assyrians, uh, often overdo uh, their, their punishment, so-called they mistreat the people. So um, it is kind of two different issues altogether. So coming back to the New Testament, according to the Gospels, Christians are persecuted because of their faith in Jesus as Christ their Savior. So 1 Peter reminds us that Christians are blessed when they suffer for doing good. And that is, they are persecuted unjustly or unfairly just because they believe in Jesus. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Now, First Peter also mentions that, however, if Christians suffer due to their wrongdoing, their own wrongdoing, it is a deserved consequence. And this is not considered as persecution according to our definition and in accord with First Peter's teachings. So thus, retributive justice itself does not seem to be the reason for Christians facing persecution in the New Testament. Okay, that yeah, that's that's a helpful that's a helpful clarification. And of course, you you define persecution at the beginning um, of our discussion as you know unjust treatment. So that 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 makes a great deal of sense. I appreciate that. We'll we'll maybe move on to talk about the um, contemporary discussion around this. Hi guys, Patrick here. Just butting in after the interview to read out the next question as the audio from the interview had problems. So the question was read as follows. For some people, the emphasis on persecution in the New Testament is a problem as it creates an environment where Christians are out there looking for persecution in places where it doesn't exist. This is more of a Western problem, but how would you respond to this issue some people have? Well, as I mentioned in the epilogue in the book, which I think I will just read it out, (laughs) having a nuanced understanding of what constitutes persecution is very important. At one extreme, failure to identify persecution may trivialize unjust suffering and lead to neglecting social justice, while unjust discrimination and harm against Christians, uh, among other vulnerable groups, continue to pervade some regions. Now, at the other extreme, simplistic identification of opposition with persecution may result in neglecting to reflect more objectively on the possible causes of opposition, including the possibility of one's own responsibility. Now, neither extreme is desirable. We did mention that not all opposition constitutes persecution. So it is true that when we are unclear what persecution entails, people will start looking for persecution where it doesn't exist. Right? But on the other hand, um, we might miss it altogether. And um, we talk about our rights and we talk about preserving other people's rights and we fight for rights, especially in the Western culture. Um, if we neglect persecution when it is really there, what happens is that we will fail to um, fight for the rights of those who have been oppressed. So this is uh, a very important aspect as well. So when I um, also speak about neglecting the uh, reflecting more objectively on one's possible causes of opposition, um, an example would be that although it is theologically correct to say that there is only one God and other gods are some kind of a human construct. Um, It is another thing when we are insensitive when relating to other people uh, of other faiths, such as calling their gods idols and uh, made of stone and wood, theologically correct, but uh, very insensitive. Uh, By doing that or by saying that, um, it is in a sense, Uh, It could be the Christian's own responsibility for causing people's opposition or even to an extent of persecution uh, because of our lack of respect uh, when interacting with others. So it does uh, create problems when we are not careful of how we relate to other people. Mm -hmm. Theological correctness is not enough, as they say. Do you think Christians are being persecuted for the same reason in today's world as they were in the first century? And... um, What's the extent of the the continuity and the discontinuity? From the outsider's perspective, uh, non-Christians, Christians Christians are to be opposed 
for the following reasons. First, the threat to dearly held traditional uh, values. Second, a threat of economic losses. And, threat, uh, and third, uh, the alleged vilification of opponents. And fourth, the threat of social unrest. These are the four reasons I gave uh, in the book. And these reasons are common to both non-Christian Jews and pagans. And this is uh, the continuity with today's context. Um, but the discontinuity part would be that the content of the conflict may take different forms, right? Mm -hmm. um, so our dearly held traditional values nowadays in today's world may be perhaps for some people, um, atheism. For yeah. them, that is the dearly held tradition. So Christians who are so-called uh, hold to the beliefs of God would then become a threat to these people. Yeah, so the content of the conflict may take a different form, mm -hmm. but the factors are very similar. We're, of course, getting towards the, the end of our discussion here, but um, uh, perhaps there is someone listening to this podcast who lives in a persecuted country. Um, I get to see the, you know, the statistics of um, who listens. You know, perhaps there's someone listening from, I don't know, Eritrea or um, China or... Um, well, probably not North Korea. I don't think they have internet there per se. But um, uh, but what it's possible that from some countries where that's happening, I could get some listeners. So, are there any particular passages or New Testament concepts that you that you'd be most inclined to to bring up in conversation with such a person? All right, I have written another article um, entitled Responding to Persecution and Marginalization of Christians in Asia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would like to read the conclusion uh, because I think it kind of summarizes uh, what we want to uh, relay here. Mm, please do. Right, so Christians and New Testament Christians, I mean, contemporary Christians and New, Te New Testament Christians have much in common with regard to the sociological factors leading to persecution, especially in terms of being perceived as a threat to dearly held traditions and the stability of the society. We have seen that other than the common denominator of faithful perseverance, the New Testament authors exhibit diverse responses when facing persecution and may differ in their opinions, even with regard to the same issue. This understanding helps us to appreciate the likewise diverse responses to persecution among contemporary Christians in our own context. While Christians seek to be peacemakers as children of God, peacemaking has to be done in a way that is faithful to Christ and the biblical teachings. The attempts that Paul and 1 Peter took to adapt rather than accommodate certain existing traditions to address concerns of their opponents is an important approach for us to consider for our own context. The effort that John and the author of Hebrews took to address the reality of fear and to identify with those who suffer persecution for Christ reminds us that encouraging fellow Christians to persevere takes more than just teaching them what to do and how to respond. Mm -hmm. Empathizing with them is just as important, if not more important. Mm -hmm. While we hope that our responses to persecution can have missional effect or address the concerns of our opponents, 
and promote mutual understanding, it certainly does not imply that we will be able to rid persecution with these efforts. Mm. A robust conviction of the eschatological and missional value of suffering persecution for Christ as well as the experience of the Holy Spirit's wisdom and empowerment are essential to faithful perseverance for all times. That's 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 great. Thanks for that. And and um I, I love what you what you had to say about em- empathy because I think sometimes, you know, we we think of people like our our good friend the Apostle Paul as kind of just this cold analytical theologian. But when you read, you know, his his letters closely, you know, you've, you see that very personal side to him. You know, he was a person who was shedding tears with with other people. And um, even if he wasn't a very charismatic speaker in real life, he probably wasn't. He was still, you know, ultimately uh, emotional and uh, supportive person. So I think it's it's really important that, you know, we bring that side out of, of them as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, but I would like to emphasize the um, diversity in responses. Mm. So throughout um, Christian history, um, even as early as those days when the third or fourth century, where the Christians were discussing whether they should um, uh, uh, receive those who have denounced their faith back, you know, after they kind of, uh, regretted and said that they will become Christians again. Mm. Um, that was one example. And even nowadays in um, certain areas in East Asia, uh, where churches are known to quarrel with each other or uh, have splits within the church because uh, different groups of Christians within the church react differently to their opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it is really not just one answer fits all. Mm. It could be acceptable to have more than one kind of response to the same situation, as we can see in um, the New Testament itself, uh, which I have given a number of examples in the book. Um, so one incident um, would be, is it is it okay to be a secret disciple? It seems that for the Gospels, um, uh, the, the synoptic Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke would say that, you know, uh, Jesus says that if you denounce him, if you, if you uh, are ashamed of him now, uh, you know, he will be ashamed of you uh, when he comes again. Uh, that is true in itself. Um, even John himself would say that um, he, critiques, he criticizes the uh, Jewish leaders who did not dare to reveal their faith in Christ um, as um wanting uh, more glory for themselves, their own honor, uh, Mm. rather than God's honor. But on the other hand, the way he portrays um, Joseph of Arimathea and um, Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus, yeah. Yeah. Um, It seems that these two are Jewish leaders uh, who, we are not clear from John's description whether they are um, believers or not until uh, the very end in chapter 19, uh, where there is a direct um, statement to say that Joseph is a secret disciple and uh, uh, Nicodemus um, uh, seems to be a follower of Jesus. Um, so I would say that the way John portrays um, this 
topic on secrecy is not as direct as what we think. There are certain situations where he, he accommodates people who need to keep their identity as Christians um, uh, quiet uh, for some reasons. So these are so-called uh, diverse response to the same situation uh, within even the Gospel of John itself. So it's a very important reminder that we have to be careful not to uh, judge other Christians just because we disagree with them how they respond to their situation. Mm. Um, and um, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays specifically for unity uh, for his believers in the context of facing persecution. And that is something that we really need to be mindful mm. of um, even today. Yeah, and of course the the two the two approaches about like secrecy they can they can of course they can both fit together. You know, it's just about which situation you you apply them in. You know, it's it's kind of it reminds me of the you have that that proverb in the book of Proverbs. You know, it's like answer a fool according to his folly, and then the one after that um, says the opposite thing, but yes. it's to make you think. You know that it's it's about the uh it's about the context you know that you can apply it one way in a different context and that makes sense but it's you know both of these are are, are valid ways of thinking kind of yeah yes well, those are of course all of the questions i have um and but it's been it's been great great to have you on chichu chichu <laughs> i got your name right chichu and um yeah i really really appreciate the the time you've uh, you've spent uh, going through this with us you're most welcome. And I hope that um, our conversation here would um, help our listeners to have a deeper appreciation of what persecution is about and how we can support persecuted Christians at various parts of the world.